Hello everyone and welcome to today's lesson. If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along with me, you can turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3 and we will be in verses 20 through 24. We'll of course be finishing up uh, the third chapter of Genesis today and the title of our lesson is Redemption. Redemption, Genesis 3, 20 through 24. Now, if you've got your Bibles open there and you take a look at those five verses when you first read them uh, it really doesn't sound like much um, it actually sounds like the author is just kind of uh, kind of cobbling or scooping together several things and putting them together to kind of wrap up the uh, chapter but it turns out that in this uh, amazing little section is the introduction of God's plan of redemption now in our modern society, the word redeem has different meanings. Uh, for example, if you redeem yourself, people think good of you after you have done wrong. For example, a husband maybe has got in the doghouse with his wife and he does something like buying flowers and we might say he redeemed himself. Uh, if you redeem a thing, uh, you restore it to its original state or value. Maybe you buy a an old dresser at a garage sale and you restore it, uh, we would say that you redeemed it or you, you, you restored its value. Um, but in the Bible, the word redeem has a very different and a very specific meaning. It means to buy back uh, or to ransom. The term always in the Bible refer, refers specifically to the purchase of a slave's freedom. Now, at this point in the story, you see Adam and Eve are in a bad way. Um, in effect, they have switched sides. Uh, they are now the enemies of God, according to Romans 5.10. They are in slavery to sin, according to Romans 6.17. And they are children of Satan, according to John uh, 8.44. Um, I saw a sign uh, this week on a Methodist church, and it said something to the effect that we are all children of God, but that's not true. Um, the Bible is very clear that uh, you, if you've been redeemed, if you've born, been born again into the family of God, you are a child of God, but if not, then you are a, a child uh, of Satan. So Adam and Eve and the whole human race, in effect, now are, on, are enemies of God. They're on the other side. And if they're going to be reconciled to God, they have to be redeemed by God Himself. In other words, they have to be ransomed or purchased. So in this little section, we get our very first glimpse of how God is planning to do that. Now, obviously, not all that could be or, or will be said about redemption and salvation is going to be said here in the third chapter of Genesis. Um, this, this great theme of redemption will be expanded on all throughout the New Testament, of course, into the Gospels and um, into the epistles in the New Testament. But three aspects of his plan are at least introduced here in these five verses, and they are faith, atonement, and security. Now, let's look at the, we'll look at each one of those. Let's look at the first one, which is faith. If Adam and Eve or any of their offspring are going to be reconciled with God, 
from their present sinful condition, then it must begin with faith. This has always been true. It was true in Genesis. It was true in the, uh, the Gospel of John. It's true in Revelation. It's true all throughout the Bible. So let's talk a little bit about this. What is faith? Now, if you ask that to most church people, they'll always answer pretty much the same way by quoting Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, or the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. But I want to make it just a, a hair easier. The Bible is clear that faith comes only when you hear the words of God. Romans 10.14 says, How are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing. So scripture teaches us, for us to have faith in God, we have to hear the words of God. So faith is simply believing God as he speaks. It's a very simple uh, definition, but it's according to Scripture. That's exactly what it is. Faith is simply believing God as He speaks. I can't believe in something I've never heard about. I have to hear it in order to put my faith in it. And quite frankly, this is what separates a born-again person from an unbeliever. One of them is committed to believing what God says, and the other is not. It's very, very, very straightforward. Now, I want to give you some examples of this. Hebrews 11.7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So in Hebrews 11.7 we are told that Noah was warned by God. God said, Noah, I want you to go build a big boat and I'm going I'm to bring a lot of water and I'm going to destroy this place and if you want to save yourself and your family, go do this. And, and, and so he was warned by God, and by faith he heard the words and he of God, and he believed them. Right? That's, that's what he did. Uh, Hebrews eleven eight through 10, uh, Abraham says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to get up from where you are, from your home city, take your family, and I want, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just start walking, and I'm going to take you to a place. He didn't know where he was going, but he was called to go, and he got up, and he went. He heard the voice of God, and he believed, and he obeyed. Hebrews 11, 11 through 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So here's the example of Sarah, um, who is past menopause. She's past the age of, of bearing children. And God has told her, I'm going to give you a son. And it says she considered him faithful who had promised. She heard God's word, and she believed God's word. That's faith. One of the greatest ones is in, uh, examples is in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 18, once again about Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now, here's an interesting thing. In this scenario, he has heard two different things from God. On one hand, he's been told that I will raise up offspring through Isaac. In other words, your, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-grandchildren are going to come through Isaac. And then on the other hand, he's told, go and sacrifice your son. Now, if the first one is true, the second one can't be true. You can't have offspring through, through a dead son. And if he kills his son, he, you know, he can't have offspring. So they, they're, they're the opposite of one another. But yet, Abraham still believed. In his heart, he thought, well, even if I kill him, God will raise him from the dead to make the first one come true. The point is, is that wherever he was, he heard God's word and he believed. He, he never doubted. He heard God's word and he believed. Now, let's go back to Genesis. At this point of time in the garden, God obviously hasn't said everything he's going to say. But faith requires that you believe his word to whatever extent he's revealed it, trusting that whatever God has said is, is, is true. Sometimes God may say very little. Sometimes he may say a lot. But you have to believe it to whatever extent he's revealed it. Now, let's face it. Up to this point, Adam and Eve have failed fairly miserably uh, in the faith area. Um, you know, they, they haven't believed God, and that's, that's why they find themselves in the situation that they do. Yet at this point, Adam exercises faith and chooses to believe God's Word. At this point in time, we're fixing, about to see that Adam will exercise faith and choose to believe God's Word. Now, you may say, where in the world, in that passage, do you see Adam's faith. Well, let's look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, the name Eve in the Hebrew literally means life. It means to breathe, to live, or, or to give life. So don't miss the irony here. Adam calls his wife life, or Eve, because she's the mother of all living. But at the time that he names her, She's the mother of absolutely nobody. Now, he's obviously expecting children. He's obviously expecting, you know, uh, uh, offspring. But why? Well, the reason he expects it is because God said they would have offspring. You remember in Genesis 3.15 when he's talking to the servant, serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In Genesis 3.16, when he's announcing judgment on the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So he's told them, you will have children. So Adam here is making a choice to believe God. Now, to you and I, it may seem obvious that he would do that or should do that. Well, of course he's, he's going to have children. God said it. Surely he would believe it. But listen, don't forget... He hasn't always believed God, right? When God said, if you eat of that fruit, you're going to die, evidently he didn't believe it. So here we are. I mean, think about this. Adam was living in paradise. He was, he was living in a place where he could taste and see and smell and hear 
the very works of God, the very power of God, the very perfection of God. And in that environment where he could taste and see and smell and hear, he decided not to believe God. When God says, if you eat of that fruit, you will die, he made a choice not to believe. Now that that really is unbelievably amazing. But contrast that with what he's done now. Once again, he calls his wife life because she's the mother of all living. But when he does that, she's the mother of nobody. You see, now he's exercising faith in God about something he cannot see. You see, before he was seeing but not believing. But now he's believing without seeing. And that is the very definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. So somewhere between the curse that ends in verse 19 and the naming of Eve in verse 20, Adam decides to believe God. Now, the question that comes up a lot about Adam is, was he saved? Was this faith that he put in God's word counted to him as righteousness as it was to Abraham? Well, the fact is, we don't know. The Bible never explicitly tells us. But I can tell you that if he was saved, it was because he believed not just that Eve would have some children, but that God would raise up one of her children to destroy Satan and redeem those that he had enslaved. Now, I believe that Adam did exercise faith. I believe that although he couldn't see it at the time, when Eve was the mother of absolutely nobody, he believed that she would have children. He believed that out of her would come a Savior to redeem them from their lost state. Listen, salvation is now and always has been by faith in God's promise. You see, before Jesus Christ came into the world, a person's faith looked forward to the promised Redeemer. Now that Christ has come into the world, our faith looks back to the Savior who has already come. So I do believe that Adam took God at his word. And what we'll see next is that God responded by providing a very graphic object lesson of salvation. And that brings us to the second aspect of God's plan of redemption that we see revealed in today's passage, and that is atonement. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, the first thing you want to see here is that this is a purely sovereign initiative. The man and woman, they don't, they don't ask for any clothes. They, you know, they've got their little fig leaves on, and, and they don't ask for, for skins. They don't participate in it in any way. It's all God's doing. So he's acting in grace toward them. You can't have salvation without grace, and grace comes in because God's, God initiates this covering, which is what the word atonement means. They don't deserve it. They don't earn it in any way. It's all grace. Now, they feel shame as they should. We talked about this in earlier lessons. Sin always brings guilt, and with guilt always comes shame. And so they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but that was, that was futile. No, no person can cover 
their own shame. So what will God do? Well, what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. No use crying over over spilt milk. Not a big deal. No. In fact, he reinforces their sense of shame by making for them a better and more permanent covering of animal skins. Now, what is really interesting about this is that in order for God to do that, in order for them, for him to provide a clothing made of animal skins, he has to kill an animal or animals. We don't know. Now, this is the first time that death has occurred on this planet. And it turns out that God is the executioner. You see, as we saw previously in our study, all animals up to this point were vegetarians. Even the animals that we would consider today or associate with killing, things like lions and tigers, even them in that day would have been vegetarians. In Genesis 1.30, God says, "...into every beast of the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food." So in the beginning, all living creatures were vegetarians of some sort. So here is the very first death, and God slays this animal, he takes the skin of that animal and he uses it to cover Adam and Eve. And, and what God is saying to them is your shame is real. Your, your shame and your guilt are, are legitimate. They are real and they have to be covered. Now, he, he covers them. He replaces their fig leaves with animal skins. And that's fine, but there's much more to it than just that. In fact, this is a magnificent picture of of salvation. God is showing in this simple act that nobody can adequately cover their sin by themselves. You see, their, their fig leaves are not acceptable. Only God can provide a covering that is acceptable. So right here in Genesis 3, we are introduced to the biblical concept of atonement which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, means covering. Atonement is a covering for sinners provided by an innocent substitute. For Adam and Eve, it was an animal guilty of absolutely nothing that is then killed so that a garment can be made to cover them. Here is our first look at substitutionary death by an innocent victim to provide a covering for a guilty sinner. And it's God himself who chooses and then executes that substitute. Now, later in history, in the, in the tabernacle of Moses and eventually the, the permanent temple in Jerusalem, God will institute the concept of the brazen or the bronze altar. Now, this was the altar on which the sacrifices were made. This is where the blood was shed and the sinner was pardoned. No matter how good a person was, uh, without the shedding of blood, there was no atonement. There was no covering of their sin. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement or covering for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. For a sin offering, a person would have to bring an animal a male one without blemish or defect. You couldn't just go into your flock and get the one with the injured leg or, or get the run of the litter. You had to bring a, a perfect lamb or a, 
uh, a perfect uh, 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 cow or whatever the case may be, and you brought it to the priest. And that innocent animal represented the sinner and took their place on the altar. In Leviticus 1.4 it says this, He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. I taught through the uh, book of Hebrews several years ago and, and did some study on this. And it talked about the fact that um, some of the commentaries did that like a family would bring their little lamb. You know, and it could be that like they had been raising this little lamb and, and, and they would put it on a little leash and they would bring it in there, right? And, and when they bring it up there to the priest, they would lay their hand on the head of that lamb. And the idea here is by laying their hand upon the head, the person is identifying with the sacrifice. The sin and guilt of the person is being moved from them to the animal. And then while they had their hand on him, the, the, the priest would literally cut its throat, slaughter the animal, and sprinkle its blood in front of the altar. And this all showed the Israelites that the first step for sinful man to approach a holy God was to be a cut was to be covered or atoned for by the blood of an innocent animal, and of course the sinner would be forgiven until they committed the next sin, and then so the next year would roll around and they would have to do it all over again year after year after year for for the blood of animals could no, could not free them permanently from their guilt and shame, but of course. Jesus Christ changed all that. Jesus, the blood of the animal would only cover until the Lamb of God would come to take away the sin once and for all. John one twenty nine. John was baptizing and Jesus comes toward him and he sees Jesus and he, of course he says the famous saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Mark 14.24, Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, For you know that you were redeemed. There's that word. You were purchased. You were ransomed. You were bought back with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In Hebrews 10, 10-18, it says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. And of course, I want to remind you of one other thing. Just as in Genesis 3, where it's God who chooses the sacrifice, the means and the methods of that to be done, where it's God ordains how it's going to be happened, nothing changed with Jesus. Acts four twenty-seven through 28 Peter says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, in the end, this is our choice. You are either going to stand before God, covered in the inadequate fig leaves of your own good works, or you can choose to stand before God, covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. Every man, woman, and child that live has to make that choice. You will rely on your own inadequate fig leaves 
or you'll choose the blood of Jesus Christ. So the first element of salvation introduced to us is faith. Believe in the fact that God has provided a deliverer who will one day crush Satan and purchase our freedom. But that kind of faith is pointless unless God has provided an atonement for sin. And of course, He has. Which brings us to the third great element of salvation, and that is security. Now, when I use the word security, what I mean is that God does what is necessary to get us safely to heaven. Now, we're taught this throughout the New Testament. For example, Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Romans 4.16, that is why it, talking about salvation, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And of course, the words of Jesus in John six thirty seven through 40 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You see, to put it very, very simply, We don't have what it takes to save ourselves, and we certainly don't have what it takes to keep ourselves saved. The only way you and I will ever get to heaven is if God saves us, and then God secures us, or guards us, or keeps us. Now, you may say, well, that's all great, and uh, those are wonderful scriptures and all of that, but what's that got to do with Adam and Eve and today's passage? Well, for just a moment... I want you to put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes. You now know that you are dying. God has, has told you, hey, you're going you know, to have a lot of pain in childbirth. You're going you're gonna to earn your uh, bread by the sweat of your brow. And you're going to do that year after year. And eventually you're going to die. And dying means you're going to go back to the dust from which you came. Now, you may not have known what that meant before, but you do now. You see, I think we can safely assume that Adam and Eve would have witnessed the slaughter of the animals that it took to clothe them. And I think witnessing that killing would have absolutely shot them. You see, it was the first time they had ever seen death. Before, it was an idea. But now, it's, it's real. And if you've ever seen that before, it's not a pretty, pretty sight. So if you're Adam and Eve and you've been told you're going to die and now you know what that is, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, to their human mind, the tree of life would have been the answer to death. Oh, I'm going to die? Well, let's go eat from the tree of life so I won't die. But you see, the problem was that would have sentenced them to an eternity in a fallen state. That would have sentenced them to an eternity in a fallen state. That that would have been horrible. 
See, God had something much better for them in store. The fact is, they will have to experience death so that they can be raised or ushered in to a new kind of life. Not a life of pain and sorrow and wretchedness, but a life of holy perfection. But God has to get them there. Because in the end, Adam and Eve are just like every one of us sinners. We not only have to have someone who paid the price of our sin, but we also have to have someone who keeps us from doing what would otherwise destroy us. So that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. You see, he puts them out of paradise. He puts them out of the garden for their own good. Now, they might not have understood that. I'm sure they didn't understand that. But you see, he's providing for their eternal security. In fact, they probably would never have left voluntarily. In Genesis 3.24, the next verse, it says this, He drove out the man. That The terminology used there is just like driving out sheep or driving cattle. You, you, you drive them to where you want them to go. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, for as long as the garden remained, the temptation would have been so great for them to run back in there and eat. But it's like Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Instead, they are forced to live outside the garden. I mean, think about that. They look in the garden. I mean, it's still there while they're living. And they see that that tree. They know that tree is there, but they can't get to it. In fact, instead, they're forced to live in hope. They're they're forced to, to believe God, to believe that a Savior would come and defeat death for them. And you see, in that way, they were forced to live just like us. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 3. And uh, as we move ahead uh, over the next few weeks, we'll begin to kind of pick up steam and, and uh, cover you know, v- you know, more verses more quickly. But I wanted to take the time going through these first three chapters over the, ne- over the last three months because they're, s- they're just so very important for a correct worldview. But next week, we will turn to chapter 4. Now, I want to give a brief preview on what we're going to see in chapter 4. Several years ago, uh, if you've been around for a while, you might have remembered uh, or might remember uh, something that happened in California with an infestation of something called the Mediterranean fruit fly. Um, of course, California is a, really America's breadbasket. They they have so many crops out there and and um, and produce so much of our food out there. So this this fruit fly comes in, and it had the potential to absolutely devastate the farming industry. And the thing about the fruit fly that was unusual is that it lays its eggs in the blossom of a plant, and then the fruit grows around it. And then sometimes later, at some time later, the larva hatches out inside the fruit and then eats its way out. You see, for us, sin is just like that. 
sin resides in the heart of every child that is born into this world. It started with Cain and Abel, and it it has gone on down through history to every single child that comes into this world. They are born with sin in their heart. And if that sin goes unchecked, the consequences in the life of that child and those around him or her can be absolutely catastrophic. You see, that's the situation that every parent since Adam and Eve have faced. I mean, let's face it, we all have high hopes for our children. We want them to grow up to live happy and productive lives. We want them to be better than we are. We want them to not make the same mistakes that we did, but they do. You see, since the fall, there's a worm in the fruit. Sin resides in the heart of every newborn child, and it is only a matter of time until it eats its way out. We sin because we are born sinners. And because of the sin of his parents, Cain is the first person, the first child born with sin in his heart. And if his story is going to tell us anything, it is this. Unchecked sin on the inside leads to devastation on the outside. And Cain's story, as we'll see next week, is even more tragic because of the high hopes that were connected with his birth. I mean, there's always joy when a child is born. And that was absolutely true uh, with Adam and Eve. There was not only the joy of just a child being born, there was the joy of the fact that... it, 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 you know, this, this child being born to them showed that God hadn't abandoned them. That the promises that he had given them in the garden about being fruitful and multiply, the promises that she said she would have children, that those promises are coming to pass. God is still blessing them. So there was the joy and the hope as Cain was born. And, and as she looked into his face, I'm sure, or into, she reflected on God's promise that he would send a deliverer through her seed. Maybe she even thought that Cain was the one. His name means acquired or or gotten. And in light of, of God's promise, it could very well mean, I've gotten him. This is the one that God has promised. And yet, she had given birth not to a Messiah, but as we all know, she's given birth to the first murderer. Next week, we'll turn to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, or 16, I'm sorry, and we will look at the story of Cain.